I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 28th, 2012. Coming up, progress on the daunting task of cleaning up the fallout of Japan's Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster nearly a year ago. And another daunting challenge of outer space debris. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. People generally don't go into academia to get rich, but it doesn't hurt when they receive financial awards for their research, as recently happened with two University of Colorado Boulder professors. Peter Johnson and Rebecca Safran, both in the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Department, received prestigious National Science Foundation honors for their innovative early career contributions. Johnson was awarded 700000 over five years to study how ecological diversity in natural communities can affect disease risk for amphibians. Amphibians, including frogs, are the most threatened class of vertebrates in the world. They're vulnerable to infections by parasitic flatworms called trematodes, which burrow into tadpoles and larval salamanders. They cause limb malformations in adults and increase mortality rates. Johnson hopes to identify the factors that control disease in natural ecosystems and to better understand the role of parasites in ecosystem processes. He'll collaborate with National Geographic to enhance a citizen science program in which members of the public on deformed amphibians they encounter. Rebecca Safran was awarded 850000 over five years to study genetic differences in barn swallow populations to gain a greater understanding of how the species are formed. She and her team hope to understand how migratory behavior, climate change, sexual selection, and geographic distance between swallow populations relate to the genetic divergence and the evolutionary process by which the new species are created. Her grant also includes a number of public outreach efforts, including a citizen science program. As a raindrop falls, its movement through the surrounding air produces friction. Now, it may not seem like that would be much. After all, a drop is pretty small. But if you consider all the rain that falls around the Earth every day, about 1,400 cubic kilometers, which is about 30 billion billion drops per day, well, that's a lot of friction. Researchers have now estimated how much energy the drag from those falling drops removes from the bulk motion of the atmosphere, and it turns out to be a major component of the atmosphere's overall energy budget. Using data from the Tropical Rainfall Measuring Mission satellite, Olivier Paluis from New York University and Juliana Diaz from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration here in Boulder calculated the rain-induced friction dissipates kinetic energy from the atmosphere in the tropics at an average rate of about a couple watts per square meter. This energy dissipation is of the same magnitude as that due to atmospheric turbulence. Thus, if the amount of rainfall increases, which is expected to happen due to global warming, such an increase could conceivably weaken atmospheric circulation. The hydrologic cycle, which is the movement of the Earth's water, is one of the aspects of the climate system that is changing most rapidly with global warming. Early horses were too small for cowboys and probably only big enough for herding cats. When they first appeared in North America, some 55 million years ago, horses stood about 12 inches tall, 
and weighed around 12 pounds. Scientists in Wyoming recently conducted a study of ancient horse teeth to see how their size and isotopes reacted to changing temperatures over time. Bergman's rule states that when a warm-blooded animal has a large distribution, animals in the warmer parts of the range will be smaller than those found in the colder areas. About 70% of warm-blooded animals exhibit this temperature-related trend today. But was it the same in ancient environments? Shortly after the horse appeared in North America, the Earth experienced its Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum. During this time, sea surface temperatures increased 5 degrees Celsius, and the horse's body size decreased by 30%. Then the climate cooled, and the horse's bodies grew 75% bigger. The scientists concluded that temperature was the driving factor in the horse's fluctuating body size, since heat is easier to conserve in a larger body. The findings could inform scientists about how animals might react to climate change in the future. But Ross Secord, the lead researcher, points out that the warming during the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum took place over a period of 20,000 years, while a comparable temperature increase is expected to occur in the next 100 years. The rate is much different, and so the question is, are mammals going to be able to keep up with that? Uh, will they be able to change their body size you know, quickly enough to adapt to changing temperature? The study and an accompanying article were published in Science this week, and the interview with Ross Secord was featured in the Science Podcast. On the event calendar, on Thursday, March 1st, Brad Udall, Director of Western Water Assessment here in Boulder, will give a talk in Denver. It's called... Colorado River Water Challenges in the 21st Century. The Colorado River supplies water to seven U.S. states as well as Mexico. Not that Mexico gets much of it anymore. The river irrigates over three million acres of cropland. We depend heavily on it here in the Front Range. Unprecedented population growth in the West, overallocation of water, and extended drought have already stressed the Colorado River to the breaking point. For example, no water has flowed from the mouth of the river to the ocean in about 20 years. And Lake Mead, the largest reservoir in the U.S., may never fill completely again. Brad Udall's talk will address such questions as, how did we get to this predicament? And what are some possible solutions for this critical river basin and its inhabitants? Udall will speak at 12.30 on Thursday for about an hour. The talk will be at Metro State University on Aurora Parkway in the Tivoli Student Union Room. For more information, go to water2012.org. Last March, one of the largest earthquakes ever recorded shook the island nation of Japan and created a deadly tsunami wave that swallowed whole towns, left millions homeless, and over 20,000 people dead. It also damaged Japan's Fukushima nuclear power plant. Most of the radiation leaked into the sea. Then one day, the wind shifted, and a plume of radiation drifted over villages and cities. The 500-square-mile area where the radiation fell continues to be evacuated. Now Japan is working to clean up the radiation so residents can move back. To learn more, how on earth Shelley Schlender talked recently with Steve Rima. He's vice president of the Radiological Services and Engineering at AMEC in Grand Junction, Colorado. 
Rima's company is assisting with radiation cleanup in the Fukushima evacuation area. He's been there several times already in the last few months. He spoke with Shelley via Skype. Here's Steve Rima. There's about 500 square miles off of the reactor site in Japan that have been evacuated. All of the utilities are off. And those 500 square miles have to be cleaned up so the residents can move back. And that's, that's where I've been. That's, where, that's what we're working on. Now, I'm trying to remember my math. I'm trying to figure, how big is 500 square miles? If you had a rectangle 30 miles by 20 miles, that's 600 square miles. On a map, it doesn't look that big, but it is. I don't know how big Denver is. Denver may be close to that. I, I don't know. It's, it's actually not as big as you would think on a map. And yet Denver might be a good analogy because this was a somewhat urban area. It's about two hours north of Tokyo. Tokyo is a huge city, obviously, much larger than Denver. Where this happened... The plant was on the east coast, which was a good thing, as it turns out, because prevailing winds are west to east. So most of the releases went in the Pacific Ocean, and while we can detect them, it's truly not enough to cause harm. There's a lot of dilution there. One day, the wind turned and blew northwest from the plant, and there's a plume that goes northwest. It's mainly small towns, farm. A lot of people live there, but it's smaller towns and cities, a lot of farmland, rolling hills, forests, that kind of land. Boy, I'm trying to picture how you clean something like that up. <laughs> um, and the first time I went there and went into this exclusion zone, which is guarded and you have to dress out to go in, it truly is mind-boggling when you look around at some of that. Some of it, you can't. A heavily forested mountain, you can't clean it up. Nature will clean it up and time will clean it up some, but some of it we're not going to clean up. We can't. Is it that dirty with radioactivity? Is it just like a little, you know, whisper of radioactivity? Or is it enough that when you go there, you go, boy, we really need to clean this up? You know, to, to go in it and work in it, it's not enough to be dangerous. There are parts of it where you would not want to live. You would not want to stand outside in the field for any length of time. It is, it is that radioactive. And it all needs to be cleaned up. Yes, it's a daunting task. The Japanese government has estimated it will cost $14 billion with a B. My gut feeling is that's low, and it'll take years. I wonder how much it's going to cost just to deal with the damage from the earthquake and the devastation of the tsunami. It's sad to go over there. There's towns and cities wiped off the map that'll probably never come back. There's fifteen or 16,000 people confirmed dead. There's 5,000 missing that they'll probably never find. And the Japanese people are probably the kindest, courteous people I've ever met anywhere in the world. They don't complain about a thing. It's, it's really sad in a lot of ways. My guess is that the effect of the radiation will last longer. Um, yes and no. It's a little different from what we found at Three Mile Island or Chernobyl or some of the other cleanups we've done. The primary isotope is cesium-137, which has a 30-year half-life. Nominally, five or six half-lives, it's truly gone. It's not like the millions of years, you know, uranium and plutonium and some other things we hear about that, oh, they'll be around for million, millions of years. That's not the case here. It's relatively short-lived, but, but that's still a long time, you know, 100-plus years. But that's not 10,000 years. That's correct, or millions. So you're doing the cleanup in that outside area. How do you tell which areas to clean up and how much to clean them up? How do you tell? Well, the Japanese government obviously is the one in charge of the cleanup. They're funding the cleanup. 
we're working with a number of Japanese-based companies, construction and remediation companies. Our, the company I work for has some proprietary technology and radiation detectors. So one of the things we've done, for example, was cleaned up some rice paddies, farm fields essentially, and they'll scrape six or eight or, or 12 inches off the top. And we have a system that'll sort that clean and radioactive, put the clean soil back, bag the radioactive soil up for eventual disposal. We've surveyed kindergarten yards. We've surveyed streets and schools and towns. And so a lot of what we're doing now is initially we're mapping it to find out what's there and then start really cleaning up in earnest. This cleanup just started a few months ago. And right now it's kind of in a demonstration phase. And then it'll really start in earnest later, probably this summer, late spring, summer. It's going to be a methodical kind of thing where you go in and clean up a town or an area. Then they'll have to turn the utilities back on and let people back in that area. And, it, and it'll, it'll move along that way, I suspect. You're saying that you'll clean it up one town at a time. And you'll look for hot spots and you'll clean up the hot spots. And then they'll come in and say it's greenfielded now. Yes, that's kind of how it's going to proceed. And it's going to take years. Thanks to Shelley Schlender for that report. Steve Rima is a VP at AMEC in Grand Junction. You can hear an extended version of the interview at our website, howonearthradio.org. And mark your calendars for March 13th, when we'll continue our look at Fukushima one year later. We'll feature two nuclear experts, Jeff King, a nuclear engineer at the Colorado School of Mines, and Len Acklin, a journalism professor at CU Boulder. Acklin wrote a book years ago called Making a Real Killing, Rocky Flats and the Nuclear West. That's coming up on March 13th. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Joel Parker. Well, speaking of cleaning up, when you were a kid... You might have thought that cleaning up your room was bad. It always seemed that cleaning up was harder and took longer than making the mess in the first place. And perhaps some of those toys were model rockets. And if you accidentally stepped on one, you would break and break it and cause even more junk to clean up, not to mention the damage it did to your bare feet. Now, imagine the problem if your room was the size of, say, the space around Earth, where real full-sized rockets and satellites are in orbit. Who's going to clean all that up? Or is it even a problem? Well, today we have Dr. Darren McKnight to talk about this issue of space junk or space debris. Dr. McKnight is the technical director at Integrity Applications Incorporated. He has served on the National Council's Committee on NASA's Orbital Debris and Micrometeoroid Program and is a member of the International Academy of Astronautics. He's co-author of the book Artificial Space Debris, also, a youth soccer coaching book called Soccer is a Thinking Game, and a new book called Hitting the Innovation Jackpot. He is an alumnus of the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs and the University of Colorado in Boulder. He's on the phone with us today from Virginia to talk about the issue of space debris. Welcome to the show, Jaron. Thank you, Joel. So tell us, what exactly is space debris? Space debris is what's left over after we've done all the useful activities in space. Unfortunately, that includes a lot of rocket bodies and payloads that are no longer functioning. 
um, and unfortunately also includes tens of thousands of fragments from um, over 240 uh, breakup events where satellites have and rocket bikes have blown up in the past. So you have all this junk out there floating in space, but space is big. Is this a problem? Well, it's getting to become a problem in certain locations. And so, yes, yeah, space is very big. Unfortunately, uh, there are certain places where the uh, are very popular for satellites to go, and those places, as in geosynchronous orbit and in low-Earth orbit and sun-synchronous orbit regions, um, it is starting to get um, very um, cluttered, and the hazard from running into each other is starting to, is starting to become significant. So there are special areas, special orbits, where we tend to like to put satellites, for example, and those are the areas that start collecting the junk. Absolutely, and uh, sun-synchronous orbit and low-Earth orbit is used a lot for remote sensing um, things. We, we learn so much about what's going on on the Earth from observing from space. Unfortunately, the way that it's set up, there's this very, very precise region around 700 to 850 kilometers in altitude that everybody wants to be there. A lot of people want to be there. And so uh, just like you would on a highway that's very busy, the busier it is, the more likely you're going to have more wrecks. It's exactly the same. So you've talked about uh, some of our satellites and rockets, but also the International Space Station is in low Earth orbit, so is that a risk as well? The bad news is it's very, very big, so it's got more of a cross-sectional area to be hit. The good news is it's at a very low altitude, and at the lower altitudes, the other space debris doesn't stay in orbit very long. A lot of people may think, well, 500 kilometers is the same as 1,000 kilometers, not that much difference, but the way the atmosphere is constructed, at 1,000 kilometers, a piece of debris could stay up there for many centuries, but at 500 kilometers, it's only going to stay up for a few weeks to a few months, depending upon the size of the object and the solar activity at the time. So these pieces of debris can uh, deorbit due to atmospheric drag or something like that and eventually mostly burn up in the atmosphere? Absolutely. Uh, any danger to people on the ground of falling junk? Absolutely, there's a danger, but um, NASA and many other international organizations have spent a lot of time uh, in an effort to make sure that people are safe. And to date, nobody's been hurt by a piece of falling debris, even though people have been hit twice by natural micrometeoroid re-entering. So it's a very interesting thing that the natural environment is still pretty daunting in space, and man-made parts of it are starting to catch up but haven't quite got there yet in, in certain regions. So we have problems with both the natural micrometeoroid and also man-made debris compounding the issue. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. If they do damage, they do damage, right? Exactly. What will happen if we don't do anything about the debris? Will most of it just eventually burn up and clean up itself? That would be nice, uh, but no, it's not going to be the case. The problem we really have right now is there's about 22,000 objects that we keep track of that's in orbit, and these objects are in the order of the size of a softball or larger. Of those 22,000 objects, there's about maybe 4 million kilograms of mass. Unfortunately, 80% of that mass is in about 3,000 large objects. And those large objects, I'm talking about rocket bodies that are 1,500 kilograms in mass, they're clustered in regions. If they were to bash into each other, they would create tens of thousands of objects that would be lethal to operational satellites. So the bad news is the big stuff will stay for a long time, and if we don't remove it 
or prevent them from colliding with each other, they will make tens of thousands of more objects that will be lethal to operational missions. So how do we clean up our mess? How do we clean up our room? Well, there's a, there's a lot of activity going on on that right now. There's one school of thought is we have to go and get the big objects out now or as soon as possible that when technology is available to do that cost-effectively. Other people have said, well, maybe we just need to keep a very close eye on them, and if two objects look like they're going to potentially collide with each other, maybe we can just nudge one out of the way, and that will save us having to go grab lots of mass. There is not a preferred solution at this point. There's a lot of analysis. I just came back from a meeting in Strasbourg, France, last week where the international community was convened to talk about some of these issues, and there are lots of international research being done right now to try to figure it out. But there's no one preferred solution or even approved solution at this point. There's probably political impact, too. It's probably not good for the U.S. to try to remove one of Russia's pieces of junk. Yeah, unfortunately, one man's junk is another man's old uh, military satellite that maybe they wouldn't want us to put our hands on. Also, too, it's not that safe to go grab old rocket bodies. Remember, this is like a gas canyon left up in space, and they may still have some fuel on board. So we also have to be very careful in trying to solve a problem. We don't create another one. So that's another area of research is to find out how safe it is to go grab some of these old rocket bodies. I don't know if it's related or not. You have a new book coming out called Hitting the Innovation Jackpot. Is that related to space debris, or is that another track you're taking? Well, I I think that how people innovate is the same, no matter if you're trying to create a satellite system that's going to provide unique imagery in support of military forces, or you're trying to get nine, 11-year-old girls running down the field together playing soccer. Well, it's... (laughs) I really feel feel that that a lot of the same stuff holds true, and so what I've had the opportunity to do is looking at many of these multidisciplinary problems in entertainment industry and bioterrorism and space debris, and I find that if I don't get too hunkered down into one domain, I actually do a better job by bringing other techniques uh, and methods from other domains back to space debris. Well, that that sounds like a very interesting multidisciplinary attack. I appreciate you talking on our show and helping us understand a little bit about the space debris problem. You're quite welcome. I tell you, I'm going to be listening to the show next time, just sitting around for a few minutes listening to your show. I was intrigued. I learned a lot of new stuff. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for being on the show, Darren. You bet. Have a good day. That was Dr. Darren McKnight of Integrity Applications Incorporated talking about the problem of space debris and what can be done about it. Dr. McKnight is co-author of the book Artificial Space Debris and a new book called Hitting the Innovation Jackpot. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. The week's show was produced by Susan Moran and was engineered by Jim Pullen. Shelley Schlender is our executive producer. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Kraftwerk Radioactivity and the theme song from the 1970s TV series Quark. Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.